So, we're looking uh, back into the Bible, uh, into the uh, Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. We're continuing in our series about Joseph, and we're looking at chapter 42 of Genesis. So, if you uh, can reach one of these uh, turquoise colored, uh, covered Bibles, you'll find one, and it's on page 47. Page 47 is a Genesis chapter 42. And uh, if you've been around with us for a few weeks now, um, you will you'll be remembering, I hope, <laughs> that we're looking at the Bible's account of the life of Joseph, one of the kind of very early kind of followers of God back in the Old Testament, um, and uh, actually one of the ancestors of Jesus. And at the center of this whole story, uh, this whole account, it's not fiction, it actually happened, but but it's kind of written up in this great epic kind of account of what happened. At the center of it all is this kind of great evil that Joseph has had done against him by his brothers. Do you remember what they did? You know, they were jealous of him and they almost murdered him. That was their plan. They were going to kill him to get rid of him because of the, the bad kind of feeling that they had against him. But actually they kind of say, oh, well, at the last minute they decide not to murder him, but actually to traffic him instead as a slave into Egypt. So they sell him for uh, 30 pieces of silver and they kind of get rid of him and off he goes. And then as we've seen in Egypt, he gets down to Egypt and things go all right for him as a slave to start with. But then he uh, suffers a, a vindictive accusation from the boss's wife. He ends up for years and years in prison where it just seems that he's forgotten. And then as we saw last week, his fortunes begin to change and he becomes the chief minister in the Egyptian government under Pharaoh. So he's had a complete kind of transformation in his experience. His, his circumstances are considerably different now. And when we pick up in Genesis 42, he's been in this top job. He's enjoying uh, life in Egypt. He's been given a, an Egyptian celebrity wife. You read in uh, chapter 41, you know, she was a very well-known woman who's the daughter of uh, one of the great high priests in Egypt, uh, you know, high-status family. He's got two boys that he's named, and we read about them in the previous chapter as well. And, you know, you can imagine Joseph thinking, this is... This is good. At last, you know, things seem to be where I hope they would always be. And, and there's distance now. Not only is there hundreds of miles between uh, Egypt and Canaan, where all the dreadful stuff, the evil that was done to him happened. Not only is there distance in miles, but there's distance in years. It's probably now uh, over 20 years since that he was in Canaan. And he had this idea. He thought... Like lots of us think, well, you know, time's a great healer, isn't it? He thought that, and he thought it so strongly that he named his first son Ephraim, as we saw last week, because he said, God has made me forget my father's household and the trouble I had there. Well, is it? Is that what happened? Well, let's see what happens next. Chapter 42. Um, uh, I'm going to read it. We'll leave, leave some out, but it's a great. It's all this Genesis stuff. They, they're great narratives. You know, sit down and read these Genesis chapters sometime because miss out the genealogies. They're a bit boring, but you can. You know, the actual stories and the, what happens is is great for a. They make a great film. Oh, they've done that, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. 
Now, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. You remember that Joseph had put all this grain on one side. The famine that was predicted has started and they were two years into it. So, so they're starving up there in Canaan and that's why there's this pressure. Go down and buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons, that's another name for Jacob. Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he said. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You're spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, You've come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It's just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother, and the rest of you will be kept in prison, so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben, he's the oldest one, replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them because he'd been using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep. And then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded the grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land, they told him all that had happened. So we'll, they tell him just what we've just read. So we'll move on to verse 35. As they were emptying their sacks there, 
In each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. Because Jacob, uh, Joseph and Benjamin were the sons of Rachel, you remember. Jacob's preferred wife, the one he fell in love with. You remember back in the story, he got tricked into marrying her, her sister first. But, but Rachel had died and, and Benjamin, was she had just had two children. So that's what that's about. My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, meaning Joseph. And he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Now, our story carries on next week. So let's see then. Today is all about getting real about sin. Because all of this is about something that had gone, that had been done that was wrong, that was sinful, and that its impact on everybody around it. See, we're all good at minimizing things we do wrong, aren't we? I, I do it quite often, I must admit. I once, I really got very irritable with someone and I really said something I shouldn't have. It wasn't that bad. Uh, in fact, that was the problem. Because it wasn't that bad, I thought, oh, it's not that bad. They won't mind. It's okay. I made lots of excuses and, you know, even asked other people who may have had other issues and, oh, you know, to kind of justify. No, it was, it was a small thing. But actually, it was, it was bad for that person. And it was weeks, if not a month or two, when I was quietly niggled by my conscience that I realized I'd done wrong. And that actually, I, in, in speaking harshly to that person, I sinned against them. It's only a small thing. But for them, it was a big thing. Then we could we put it right. We met and prayed and talked it through. But the thing is, I had to get real with what was wrong. Then it could be put right. Or maybe, and this is tricky, someone does something wrong to us. And it hurts. It hurts. And we say to ourselves, it's nothing. There's nothing to forgive, we say. It's okay. But we're not really being real, are we? Because it isn't okay. Because it hurts. Now, last time, in chapter 41, we saw uh, Joseph's new life started. As I said before, he got this son Ephraim. He says, God has made me forget my trouble in my father's household. Well, that's not really true, is it? He can't even mention his brothers. <laughs> he doesn't say, God has made me forget my, my family. God has made me forget my brothers. God has made me forget my father's household. You know, I think there's even a bit of that in there. He talks about being fruitful. Manasseh means God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. That's his other son's name. And, and he's you know, talking about the land of my suffering. Jo- Joseph still feels like an exile, despite what he says. Because of what's been done to him. And he's on a journey through the next few chapters. And there's lots more to learn on this journey as we shall see. And he's on this journey 
that will actually begin here, where we are in chapter 42, and actually end with his reconciliation with his brothers. It's an amazing account. It's an amazing epic. God is going to be working his bigger purposes out through all the mess and all the sin so that we can learn from his experience. That's uh, what's been happening. God has made me forget my trouble, he says, but it wasn't true. And we're going to be thinking about these two things. We're thinking about getting real about sin's damage. And we also want to get real about sin's burden and sin's guilt. That's what we can learn from Joseph's experience. And as we face these challenges, let's be real. It's what this chapter invites us to do. So then if we're going to be real about sin's damage, what can we learn? Well, the first thing we can learn is that forget it just doesn't work, does it? Because as you read through the first few verses of, of this chapter, the writer uh, uses the word brothers time and time again, about six times in the first few verses. His brothers, his brothers, his brothers. Uh, they, you know, he's got brothers. <laughs> he has history. And the history has made him partly what he is and has put him where he is. And it's had effect on the way he is as a person. And these brothers turn up, don't they, in the first few verses. After after at least um, uh, seven years since he became the chief uh, famine management minister in uh, Egypt, in his office one day, there are his brothers wanting to buy food from him. They don't recognize him, but he does them. And as they bow before him, he remembers the dream he'd had 25 years ago. Do you remember Joseph had that dream? And he dreamt uh, uh, about how his brothers would one day uh, bow at his feet. And here it is happening in front of him. Now for Joseph, as we've seen, every time he's had dreams, uh, or he's been involved with dreams, pharaohs and the cupbearers, dreams had always got something to do with God in Joseph's uh, kind of thinking and experience. And I think there's a little nudge here. As he remembers the dream, there's this nudge that God is at work, that God is doing something. But for Joseph, though, there are feelings. He's caught off guard completely. He It's back. This thing that he thought was over is right back there in his office. And he's, you know, feeling it. Recognize that? Ever had that experience? Something you thought was over, dealt with, didn't matter, it's actually back. Because you can't just forget it, it doesn't work. And the pressure is on for revenge. Jacob has power over, uh, sorry, Joseph has power over them and he uses that power. And, And he doesn't just sell the grain, he accuses them of dishonesty, actually of treachery, of being spies. Well, they were pretty treacherous, weren't they? He'd experienced that for himself. He just spent, the, you know, at least uh, 13 years in, in prison because of it. And you can see it kind of bubbling out. He's got no time whatsoever for the 10 of them. He just wants to know about Benjamin. That's all he cares about. And so what does he do? He slaps them in jail for three days. Why do he do that? Well, why wouldn't he? If he had the power, he could have revenge on them. He just, uh, and what's the reference point for this? Why does he do this? What's kind of, kind of the, the, the thinking behind it? Did you notice that? Twice it says, as Pharaoh lives. He's been a true on Egyptian. I think Joseph has slightly lost the plot, but who can blame him? 
as he's overwhelmed. He's all over the place. He hadn't forgotten. Now he's captured by this desire to slap them all in jail and see Benjamin. There's this shock of realizing how this had affected him. There's this tidal wave, like a tsunami of feelings comes upon him as these guys who've done this to him are right there in front of them and he has the power to put them in jail and think, well, he might as well do it. And he does it straight off, no question. And the call, as he's, as he's uh, overtaken by this tidal wave of emotion, so the call, super efficient, Holy Spirit wise, government official that he was before he say that, saw them, takes a three day mini break as he puts them in prison and leaves them there. And who could blame him? Now listen, this could happen to us. Reality suddenly hits. You've been hurt. Emotions rush in like Joseph. And the pressure be to be defensive, to be hostile, to be angry, to take revenge. We can be there too. But the thing about Joseph is this. He doesn't stay there. See what happens after three days? It's in verse 18. On the third day, he regains a bit of self-control. That's my reading of the situation. But that's what it looks like to me. He's kind of a chance to think about it, to cool down. And he comes up with this plan. And interesting, in verse 18, he brings God into it. No longer is it as Pharaoh lives. It's, I fear God. I've got a plan. You take the food. You go back to your family. You can have the food, but bring your brother back. And I'm going to keep Simeon as a kind of... um, A shorty, I suppose the word would be. So as we get real with sin, forget it doesn't really work. But the second thing we can learn is that that God is really with us as we face up to the damage of sin. Because, you know, by the time, you know, whatever Monday morning or whenever it comes, he's, he's kind of back with God and he's beginning to treat them differently. He begins to treat them as God would have him do so. Now that's not easy. He gives them the grain. He encourages them to come back. He's concerned for their safety. He says, if you don't come back, you're going to die. Because he knows, as he explains in the next chapter, there's going to be five more years of famine. They are pretty much dead in their community of starvation after two years. And there's another five to come. And Joseph is saying is, for goodness sake, come back and get more food and bring the whole family. Bring Benjamin. He doesn't want Benjamin to die. So he is, I think, he's changing in his response to him. He's generous to them. That's the thing. So why does he give them all their money back? Is that, was he just messing with their heads? Well, I don't look at it now, but in the next chapter, in chapter 43... When they come back a second time, they bring the money back to give back to Joseph because they were they, they thought it was some country. And the chief steward has an interesting conversation with them. But in, in this conversation, it's very clear that it wasn't a trick, that Joseph was in essentially being generous. So he does that, and he wants to get them back with him. He could have put Reuben in jail, but he doesn't. Reuben's the oldest. Perhaps out of, out of respect or because he's being more gracious, he holds Simeon, who's the second oldest, as hostage. But then in verse 21, 
So you might think, whoo, that's all right. He, you know, he's back on, he's back on course. In verse 21, he, he, the thing is, it's still painful. The pain hasn't gone. It's still really, really tough. He hears them talking about how they felt guilty for what they'd done. They hear, he hears them talking about how he pled, pleaded for his life. And there he is. Suddenly he's back at the lip of the cistern or the pit. He's back there again as if it was happening again. As they ripped off his beautiful coat and as they, against his pleas, you know, got hold of him and he's saying, please don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me. As they threw him in and sat down and had their lunch. He's back there. He can remember it. And what is he? He's overcome again by the emotion. He has to go and weep. You see, there are two things going on at the same time here. Joseph is unwilling to honor God and live his way. But he's also being very real about the evil they had done. He doesn't say that it was nothing. He'd been trying to kid himself that, but it was something. And, and, and these two things are coming together. And sometimes I think it's true for us as well. The thing is, it was real, it was sinful. And we, we, we have to admit that. When we've been wounded by the sin of others, we can't pretend that it hasn't hurt as it has. There's real damage we've experienced. But also, we look at the same time to go God's way. To not stay in that place demanding revenge. Wanting to smash the person like they smashed you. That's where the road to reconciliation begins. As we hold these two things together somehow. Now, what about us? Do you need to get real about the damage sin has caused you? Did you pretend that it didn't matter? You see, God has a way that the wounds of sin, as we shall see, can be healed. Where you've been hurt by someone else's sin, get real about it. Get to the Lord. Tell him. Ask him to walk with you on the road to healing and help. Pray for one another in our community. And if it's something that is really deep and, and having a massive impact on your life, well, go and, and get to talk to an experienced person like a, a Christian counselor or someone uh, in prayer ministry who can help you face that and walk through that with you. But we need to be real about the damage we may be carrying from sin against us, as Joseph was. That's what he did. So that's Joseph. Let's now think about the brothers. Because we need, like they did, to get real about sin's burden and guilt. See, the rest of Joseph's family are also on this same journey, actually. And we'll see them come together as the story unfolds. Now, there's in some way... I've written in my notes, but as I looked at it this morning, I thought maybe that's not true. I was going to say that in some way their journey is even more challenging than Joseph's, although I don't want to minimize the, the, you know, the difficulty Joseph was in. You know, in some ways, <laughs> you know, if, if Joseph is on a journey with, you know, like getting a bus outside Portsmouth to West Quay, actually that's too easy. Or maybe it isn't actually. But anyway, you know, if, if that was his journey, their journey was like kind of trekking by foot from the Arctic Circle to uh, West Quay. Why would you go to West Quay from the Arctic Circle anyway? But you know, you know what I mean. It's that they have got, they've got an enormous, you know, they, they, they tried to kill their brother and, and all of that that happened, as we shall see. 
But uh, that's not to minimize, because both are really hard journeys. So what do we learn? Well, the first thing we can learn from them, their experience, was that their sin was everywhere. It touched everything. This 20-year secret, you see, they'd rewritten history on day one. Do you remember? You know, they got their story ready, and they told their father, oh, no, we don't know what happened. We found his coat. It must have been a wild animal, and he's been killed, and so on and so forth. That was their story on day one. And for 20 years, that's the story they'd been telling. Every time a visitor came around and said, oh, tell us about the family. You know, how many sons have you got? Have you got any? You know, oh, I've met all your brothers. Oh, yeah, well, we have this one. But, you know, he, he was going to visit us and, you know, we, 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 he got lost and we found his coat and, you know, da, da, da. That, that, that was the narrative. It was in their family. That was their family story for 20 years. And maybe they started believing it. But secretly, they knew you know, they told that story, the story they told Joseph. It, it came out very easy. Oh, yeah, we want to talk. We had one, one brother. He's no more. But they knew. They knew what had happened. They felt bad about it and guilty. And you see, at the beginning, it's quite amusing. Obviously, uh, Egypt is mentioned. You know, there's, there's, there's food in Egypt. And, and, and there's almost like a little bit of backstory when Joseph, when uh, J- um, uh, Jacob says, um, why do you just keep looking at each other? <laughs> you know, every time, every time Jacob said, hey, there, there's food in Egypt. I think they're doing well out there. Every time Egypt was mentioned, all, all, all the sons kind of, you know, you can imagine. I think it's quite amusing myself. Some of you are smiling. I'm glad. It's kind of guilt, you know. They were living with this secret. They were deceiving their father. 20 years of it. Hidden. And they were guilty. They were guilty and they felt it. Because this sin had paralyzed their family. It had ruined their relationship with their father. <clears throat> Jacob's faith has been shattered. He no longer sees the God of Abraham. It's only the grave ahead of him, he says. I'm going to go down to the grave without another son, my sorrow. It's like the whole family is being hollowed out by this wrong to Joseph. And the lie that buried it. It's just everywhere. It's all over them. But we also learn that the way back starts with owning the wrong. Being real about sin. You see, God is working. There's a way back from this. If you look at verse 21 to 22, this conversation they have that Joseph overhears, it reveals that they know they're guilty. They feel that they deserve punishment and accounting from God. They expect God to judge them. That's what they say when they find the money. Oh no, what's God doing to us? You know, God's going to judge them. This guilt has been on them, on them for 20 years. Would anyone find out about it? Even Jacob, when they come back, he kind of sees it clearly and he tells them, you've taken one son, now you've lost me another one. And they don't say, no, we didn't take him. Almost as if Jacob himself kind of says, yeah, I know, you're lying to me. I know you've been lying to me. Because he lost them years ago. But for the first time in 20 years, they're real about their sin. You see, it wasn't just wrong to Joseph. It was wrong against God. And it had wrecked their lives and it had robbed them of their destiny because that's what sin does. The stuff we do that's wrong to one another, it's against God. 
And we feel guilty at a deep level because we are guilty. Because we know these things are wrong and we know what we should be doing. So we don't need anyone to accuse of us anything. We choose to ignore it. That's why we need Jesus. And this story is pointing us in that direction. At one level, it's part of a big story of how God is going to rescue the human race. This family's destiny is to bless the world through one of their descendants, the seed of Abraham, Jesus. The brothers are guilty. Their relationship with God has gone. They deserve punishment. The family are out of sync with God. They're out of sync with each other. And that's a picture of where we all are. We're all rebelled against God. We all do things that are wrong. We are all guilty. And we know it. So here's the question. How can this be dealt with? Well, God has done something in this story. God does something to bring them together. That's what these chapters are about, actually. Through Joseph... They receive God's love in the end. They find forgiveness and they find their destiny again. And there's reconciliation. All of this is going to happen in the next few chapters. And the Bible promises that God would do that for all of us if we accept it. Because Isaiah 53 is a really important passage in the Bible. It's on page 741. Could you just turn to it? I just want us to just get just get the flavor of some of what we know of what God has done about our guilt and our sin. It's page 741. It's a passage about someone promised from God who would deal with our sin. It's the passage in the Old Testament that is most quoted in the New Testament part of the Bible. It's most referenced. Jesus had this passage on his mind when he went to the cross because he quotes it. The disciples and the New Testament writers follow him in this because this passage makes sense. They look back and they see it makes sense of what's happened. It points to the big purpose of God. So look at verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, someone is punished to bring us peace. The iniquity of our sin, that's another word for sin, is laid on him. We're guilty. We've turned to our own way. He has taken that for us. He has carried our sin. We celebrate it at communion. But more than that, if we are overwhelmed by the wounds of being sinned against, He's taken that pain, it says. He's borne our suffering. By his wounds, we are healed. By what Jesus did on the cross enables the damage and the pain 
and the wounds of sin that's been kind of done to us to be washed and cleaned and healed. I wonder whether we need to know that. That as we're forgiven for our sins, so we can be healed from the wounds that go with sin. Those inflicted on us by others or by ourselves. Jesus has dealt with it. We celebrated it just a minute ago. And as I come to the close of this talk, I want us to look at how this promise is used to help explain what Jesus has done for us. Because the disciples, as I say, did this. You know, remember the Apostle Peter, one of the disciples? Well, he saw Jesus die, and he wrote a letter, and there's a little bit of it I'd like us to read in on page 1218 in 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you'd just like to turn that up briefly, just a couple of verses. This is Peter quoting Isaiah 53 in verse 22. There is the quotation. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And then he goes on to quote from it. When they hurled their insult at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed so if there's sin that kind of is holding you back or stuff that's happened says we can die to those things those things really can be over because by his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray from but from but now he says you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We can return home to God. We can come back to our shepherd. We can live God's way in righteousness. We can die to sin in that sense. Or another another one of Jesus' disciples who saw him die, just go on a few more pages onto page 1225. John, the, the apostle John, 1 John 1, verse 7 to 9. Look at what that says. And then we'll close. If we walk in the light, verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's where that songwriter got it from. It's in the Bible. He purifies us from all sin. What else does it say? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We need to be real about sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, we can be cleansed. He will forgive us. He is faithful and just. He's not going to cheat about it. Because Jesus has paid. He's died. He's dealt with it. God's justice and God's mercy is seen on the cross. So, we can get real about sin. In fact, we must do. Real about the damage it causes. Real about the guilt that we carry. Just as Joseph and his brothers did. Because unless we're real about it, how can we receive what we need? 
But once we get real about it, once we come to him for his forgiveness, for his cleansing, then we find that he is everything we need. He lifts the burden. He washes the guilt. He heals the wounds. He invites us to come and live with him in a new way. That's what he's done. But if we're not real about sin, just going to miss it. If we are, if it says if we confess, if we're open and honest, we can receive, come to him and ask him for what we need. We could do that today. Start that journey. Might not be easy, but the promise is there. By his wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the honesty of your word. We thank you for how uh, these kind of events of hundreds of years ago seem to just so resonate with us in many ways. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done to enable us to die to sin and live to righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that we can know that guilt cleansed. We can be forgiven. And thank you, Lord, that you walk with us as you did with Joseph. Through all the anger and the revenge and the overwhelming emotions we feel. To take us to a point where we can receive your healing and your help. As you enable us to, as we've received the forgiveness you've given. To know the the cleansing of, of things that have happened to us. As we walk with you in a new way. Lord, may we know that we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen.